At Dublab, we believe in equality and action. Strong, creative people have the power to make a difference. My voice is coming to you from the Dublab studio. Make your voice heard just as clearly by voting. Broadcast your message by participating in one of the most important elections of our generation. Get started by using vote.gov and registering today. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dublab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dublab Radio Archives. We have Gavin Breyers beaming in right now. How are you, Gavin? Fine, thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, joining us on Dublab this morning. That's fun. Thank you. If you can, uh, can you uh, paint a picture of where you are right now so the radio can kind of uh, beam into your uh, your current existence? Yeah, I'm on uh, the west coast of Canada, so I'm on the same time zone as you. Um, we live here for part of the year. I'm on Vancouver Island. Uh, we have an old 1890s farmhouse and a few acres just about 25 minutes outside Victoria, B.C. Uh, we look across um, the Juan de Fuca Strait and see the northern coast of Washington State, the Olympic Mountains across uh, the sea about 20 miles away. And um, it's kind of a beautiful sunny day, as it is most of the summer. Big fir trees, cedars, all kinds of things around us. And um, the ocean's not far away, and uh, I swim most nights. So it's a kind of... Uh, kind of paradise, I guess. It sounds that way. When did you first uh, discover that area? Uh, Well, we moved here, oh, 15 years ago. Um, I uh, met my wife, who is a Russian film director um, in Victoria. She and her daughter had emigrated from Russia in the mid-90s, and I was working on my second opera, and the the director was Atomay Goyan, the Canadian film director. Mm. And I was invited to work on this film project, and he said, you should go and have a look at it. So I went, we got married, uh, my wife and I got married, and my son was born here. So we have a house here, and eventually we decided we'd settle in England, because for the first year I was flying backwards and forwards every three weeks, which is a bit crazy. Yeah. Uh, so we settled in England, so the kids' education happened there. But we kept the, the house, so we used to come over every summer, and... Uh, and more often if we can. And now my son's just finished school and he's going to university. It means we can come over more or less any time, but we always come in the summer. Beautiful. Well, I'm sure, <clears throat> sure you've traveled throughout much of your life uh, being a, a very active composer and musician. The the kind of split of homes being kind of in, in both of these worlds, is that something that comes naturally to you and does that somehow fulfill part of your creative process or just your life in general? Well, I think it's just a fact of life that I have traveled a lot. Uh, my second daughter, my first marriage, she's living in Melbourne. So there's, um, uh, you know, there's a kind of, um, what, 17-hour time difference between me, me and that, her at the moment. So I have to be very careful about when I call so it's not in the middle of the night. For and, sure. Uh, we get used to these things, and uh, my eldest daughter and my grandson are in London. Um, so we are all over the place, and I do travel a lot. So it's part of the... the you know, that's what I do all the time with performing, but it's not, it's something I, I do, I, I mean, I used to love traveling, but now I realize it's just a necessity, and uh, I don't mind it, but I, 
um, luxuries to be stay put and be able to just sit and write and get on with things, which I can do in the summer here, <clears throat> and I can do in between things in the rest of the year. I've actually, um, unbeknownst to you, caught a, a little glimpse of you traveling once, heading back from the Big Ears Festival this year on a little plane from Knoxville, Tennessee to Washington, Dulles airport. Yes. I was on this uh, small cramped uh, airplane with you and, and, and many of the other musicians who were there. Uh -huh. um, so you, you travel well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just um, sit down, accept it, have a glass of something and time passes. That, that works. So uh, time passes indeed and we're going to uh, travel in time back the other direction. Can you tell me a bit about, you painted a picture of where you're, you're currently um, spending your days can we flash back to Goole and East Yorkshire, England, where you came up? Can you uh, tell us a bit about that setting? Yeah, it's a very quiet place. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a port, a seagoing port, although it's on a river. It's an inland port about, I guess, 30 miles from the sea. It's where the uh, big river, the Humber, comes in from the North Sea and eventually narrows down to the River Ouse, which is where Goole is. It, the landscape is completely flat. The area is actually below sea level, and it was all reclaimed by the Dutch in, I guess, the 17th century. Um, but it's a very quiet place where sort of time stands still. Um, mm. It used to be called Sleepy Hollow, and um, nothing much happened there at all. So there's no kind of theater, there's no concert hall. Uh, the road bypasses Ghoul. If you're going to Ghoul, you go into there, you wouldn't be going anywhere else. So it was a very quiet and really very enjoyable childhood and my teenage years, uh, I really only left school when I went to university. So it was the uh, first 18 years of my life, that was, that was it. And I guess that kind of placid, you know, uneventful um, state of affairs may end up in some of my pieces sometimes. somewhere this little note that says uh, that you make intellectually engaging yet still emotionally touching music and that's something that that I think I've felt in your music um, but reading that kind of illuminated it a bit is that something that that you you balance the the worlds of I mean you're you're very well trained you're you're very well respected collaborating with some of the greatest minds of music visual art dance etc but for you how do you balance out the emotional and the intellectual well that's always a, a kind of a, a delicate thing um it would be probably quite easy to write something which was a, a real tearjerker a way of just pulling the heartstrings but mm -hmm. that's kind of manipulative yes. and that's the kind of thing you would do if maybe you were setting a kind of Hollywood movie score um, but to do something which actually has real emotion um, mm. is often understated and to do that you've got to really keep things under control and within limits mm. and just allow if you like the emotion to, to seep out from time to time and that does involve sort of intelligence and planning and care and sort of concern for, for nuance so I guess it is always a delicate balance, and I try to err on the side of restraint rather than overt emotion. Hmm. On, on the side of restraint, maybe that, that kind of brings to mind almost a, a slow build as well. And, and one of your pieces that, that has uh, 
a marvelous slow build is a piece called Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet. I had the, the great fortune of seeing your performance uh, this year at the Big Ears Festival with the uh, Knoxville Symphony Orchestra and absolutely hands down my, my favorite performance of that whole festival. Oh, thank you. But it's it's this building around a core element and and it, it really unfolds in such a beautiful way. Can you tell us a bit? People will, will hear that core element in just a moment, but can you tell us about that kind of central um, moment of that piece and how this all kind of uh, was born? Well, it came about because a, a recording of an old man singing a fragment of a religious song sort of came into my lap by accident. It was on a piece of tape. It was destined to be, be thrown away, and I happened to listen to it. And I was very struck by the quality of this old man singing. He was mm. fragile. He was towards the end of his life. He was living on the streets. We know virtually nothing about him, and all that remains of him is this 25, 26 seconds or so of his song. And I was really touched by this, and decided, and the piece itself, this is a short piece, made a natural loop. The end sort of fed into the beginning. So I did that, and then and thought about sketching an accompaniment. So one thing led to another, and eventually I decided to extend it and just take this voice on a kind of journey by just gradually adding accompaniments which just sustain the voice and enhance it and just take it into a kind of new region. But all the time as I was doing that, I wanted to make sure at the center of that was the old man's voice. Mm. Uh, that whatever I did, I didn't sort of overwhelm it or try to be too clever to show, look what smart harmonies I can do, look what a clever orchestrator I am. Everything really respected that old man's sound, and we just go along with it. And it's now what, what 46 years since I made mm-hmm. first made the piece, and even now, as, as in Knoxville in March, um, when I'm played, I'm still touched by that old man's voice, and I still hear things in that voice which I maybe haven't really noticed before. It's um, it's a it's an, a, a it's a one-off. It's not the kind of thing I could ever repeat. Mm. Uh, it just because it just happened, and in a way, I just pursued the logic of where one thing led me and just kept going until I ended up with a piece. What, what was it about the spirit of his voice that, that so moved you and what, what elements did you choose to kind of uh, almost magnify um, within that through your composition arrangement? What was the spirit that you wanted to bring out and to elevate there? Well, the first thing that struck me was, of course, was I didn't actually know the tune. It was a, a religious fragment, and I was brought up in the Christian church. I'm no longer that active, I'm probably mm-hmm. a practicing Christian, but I was brought up in the church. I used to sing in the church choir. My mother rang the Sunday school in a small town. So I knew hymns pretty well, and even now, you know, if I go to a funeral or a wedding, I don't need to look at the hymn book. But uh, I didn't know this, so that was the first thing that drew mm-hmm. me to it. And later, after much research, we've more or less come to, we have come to the conclusion that he actually improvised it, so it is his song. Um, so there was the fact that it was unknown that led me to it. Then the voice itself, uh, in the first place, it was very musical. He was it was in tune. He happened to be in tune with my piano. Um, he has a very nice sense of phrase. Um, he holds his pitch, uh, and, but there's a sense of um, although the voice is fragile and it, it waves a little bit, he sort of knows what he's doing and. Not sure that he ever had been a singer, but he has a very beautiful sense of music. And but there is this kind of uh, sort of hard to identify quality, which I find is this sense of great humanity and warmth in the voice. I mm. mean, he, he sings that Jesus' blood never failed him yet. Yet there he is, 
man in his late 70s, maybe even 80, living rough on the streets of London, has done for many years. And in a way, if ever anyone had been let down, to some extent he had, but he didn't think so. He just had this sort of, almost like you can hear like a smile on his face as he's singing. You know, he's bright-eyed and optimistic in spite of his circumstances. So I feel this great kind of simple humanity, and, and it's not a religious thing. It's just a, a broadly human quality, which I find immensely touching. And that's maybe, you know, the the best of what music can do is be transcendent and make people have this sense of ecstasy, whether they're spiritual or otherwise, that music brings that out of people. And this piece surely does that. As you were composing this piece, were, were you just playing his voice back or, or was the voice already kind of ingrained in your, your psyche? When I was writing, I guess by then I, 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 I knew the voice, so I'd listened to it a lot and just wrote out the, the, uh, the tune and then sketched some harmonies. So once I started just arranging it for different instruments, um, you know, the voice was already in, in my head and uh, then of course we, we, we then played it. And the first time we played it was maybe just about maybe a dozen <coughs> my friends, uh, fellow composers, 71, 72, and then we recorded that version in 1975. Uh, on Brian Eno's Obscure label, the mm -hmm. first of that uh, series of albums. And uh, although it's deleted, I've now reissued it on my own label, so it's now available, you know, uh, safely preserved on CD and download and so on. So it's, it's now out there. And later you also collaborated. Um, Tom Waits chimed in and, and was involved in a later recording of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Uh, well, at that time, you see, the old vinyl uh, had disappeared and wasn't available, though it did have <clears throat> a sort of cult success. I mean, the name of the record label was Obscure, and that was how easy it was to find it. You know? <laughs> so it didn't do massive sales. And um, But it was... Uh, Tom told me that this was his favorite record, and I thought that was really high praise. Mm. Um, he heard it, I think, the first time when he and his wife had met quite early on, and it was, I think it was her birthday, and they were listening to the radio, and he talks about how they listened to this sound drifting over the space at the end of a birthday party, everyone had gone home. And it meant a lot to him, and I had been in touch with Tom a little bit before that about a possible project, and so we were sort of in touch, and then I had the idea when Philip Glass started his label Point in the early 90s, Philip, I'd known, who I'd known for many years, he asked if I would if I if you put some things of mine on the um, on the label. So I sent him all sorts of things I wanted to put out. And mm. He went back to this really old one and said he'd love to put that out. And um, also he said he wondered what else I would put on the album because clearly we had a 24-minute vinyl side. Here we have like 75 minutes or so available. And I said, no, no, I'd, I'd just do the whole thing. And he was a bit worried because he thought it would be, become rather kind of long and boring. But what I decided to do was to make the first 24 minutes exactly the same structure as the original one, and then just to take it through other forms of orchestration, uh, because by then I knew a bit more about writing for orchestra and, um, and choirs and things like that. And then at some point I decided that as everything throughout the whole piece had been an accompaniment, just, just supporting the voice, I thought at some point, maybe two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way through, someone should join along and I thought about Tom the quality of his mm. voice the quality of his lived in experience in his voice 
<clears throat> would make a kind of like a, as if they were going on a journey and he just walking alongside the old man on the road and just singing along, but not as a loop, but in real time. Yeah. So he follows that journey. And uh, working with Tom that day when we recorded in Northern California was probably one of the great uh, musical days of my life. And uh, I enjoyed it and he did too. before the recording of this and you had been more in a jazz setting I'd love to to flash back to to that world but also the bass and and what drew you to the bass and and what was it about the resonance of that instrument that that kind of magnetized you I'd always wanted to play bass um, but in the small time where I lived there was no instrument so I was 18 years old before I actually physically had my hands on the bass when I went to university. And there's an old bass just lying in the corner of the music department at Sheffield University, and it'd been neglected, and I asked if I could fix it up. If, if I did that, could I use it? And they said yes, so I did. So, so I started at that age. My mother was a cellist, uh, an amateur cellist, so I had that low resonance um, at home, and my uncle was a church organist, so I was used to those kind of deep resonant sounds. but. Well, as, as, a, as a kid, uh, I always always listened to the bass lines in pop songs and, and in jazz rather than the melody or the words. Um, and it was something because I just loved the way the bass anchors the harmony. So I started at 18 and taught myself to play and then with a, you know, playing with some university jazz groups. And eventually within a year or so, I was working, by the second year at university, I was working as a full-time professional jazz player uh, and a professional bass player playing in clubs at night and being pretty slow at making early morning lectures. <laughs> I'm sure. And you were studying philosophy at that time, is that right? That's right, that's right, yeah. Mm. Um, and the, the, I was lucky that the people I was playing with, uh, guitarist Derek Bailey and Tony Oxley, who are two of the very finest in, in, improvisers of, of you know, the last sort of 30, 40 years, happened to be the local players. And they, it was their group that I joined. And in fact, eventually, was just a trio. And we worked together for a few years and gradually moved from the kind of harmonic jazz world of, say, Bill Evans and that kind of world into sort of free playing and so on. But we did sometimes play with others. I remember we did a tour in 1966 where I was a bass player with Lee Konitz. He did a kind of a, a northern UK tour, so I was playing with other people too. And was that something that was in the air? Was the kind of free, free sound of jazz um, prominent, or was this a really fringe kind of thing in, in, in your world there? Well, it, it, uh, where I was living, and in fact in England, we, it seem, does seem that we were probably the first people to play free at all, but we were li mm -hmm. working, living in isolation in the north of England, so we were not in touch with the kind of mainstream and the current activity in London. Uh, so we did that very early on, and, uh, but there were no real recordings from that period. Mm -hmm. But I always loved the kind of the freer playing. I remember it, even in the sort of late 50s when I was probably about 16 or so hearing Ornette Coleman for the first time on the radio, yeah. and I thought it was sensational, and I loved the fact that... Uh, Every, all the kind of jazz writers and jazz critics who were saying this is the end of the world, this is not jazz as we know it. And I thought, great. That's if success. If people say such bad things about it, there must be something there. You know? Absolutely. I think throughout uh, history, that's, uh, the that's a great sign of success. If you, uh, yeah. you can cause a riot or burn things down through music, uh, you've done well. You, you did issue a recording of uh, the Joseph Holbrook trio as well, is that correct? Well, that 
particular track that was something which Derek recorded, and it was in my living room, my little flat in Sheffield, and it seems, I don't think you can probably imagine what it's like to hear something of yourself playing 52 years ago. Um, it's, it's a slightly surreal experience. But th that was the only, that's the only thing that remains from that hmm. period of the trio, uh, uh, and that was the kind of, we were reading through, or r roughing through, saying Miles Mode of Coltrane. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of free playing on a kind of established change. So I abandoned that music in 66 and went off and did other things. And the, but the trio was reformed 32 years later when it was Tony's 60th birthday. He was living in Germany and West German Radio wanted to do a kind of feature on his work. So it dedicated a weekend to that. Yeah. And they decided that they would reform this trio, this kind of legendary trio. So um, Derek, Tony and I met uh, and I agreed to do it even though I hadn't played this kind of stuff for 32 years. Uh, we were to play live in a hall in Cologne in front of about 500 people. It's going to be recorded by the radio. It's going to be made a CD. It's and different, I different than your stuff. living room. <laughs> yeah, and I hadn't touched this stuff for years, and we didn't rehearse. We we had dinner the night before, but we just talked about old friends. Yeah. We had a, like a one-minute sound check, then we played for about an hour. And How did it, it go? Was, <laughs> well, yeah, probably, um, I mean, I can hear when I hear the first notes of that album, that I'm a little bit tentative in the first measure, mm. but I make the analogy, it's a little bit riding a bike. If you haven't ridden a bike for 32 years, you get on it and you can still ride. You mm. might be a little bit shaky, but you eventually you can go in a straight line. And after about 10, 15 minutes or so, you start doing your old tricks, you know, doing a few wheelies, uh, trying kind of little tricks on the bike. And that's <laughs> what happened with the bass. You know, I gradually got into it. And uh, it was like moving back into a, 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 a period of music which I'd enjoyed and relished, but which was my past. Yeah. But for them, the, interestingly for the two others, Derek and Tony, they found it a real challenge because they'd evolved in different ways as improvisers and they were doing much more kind of textual things, mm. more abstract things, whereas I was using pitches, actual notes and you know references, and they suddenly found they had to listen in a different way and it was terrific for, for all of us. And later we we put in the studio for a while, and a double album was was uh, issued by John Zorn just just when Derek died in the mid in 2005. Yeah. So that, that, some of that stuff came out, and there are still stuff, uh, you know, m recordings uh, around which um, uh, could be heard. I came, I was given the last live date that we ever played in in, in Belgium, and it was recorded on a 120 cassette, and I've managed to recover it and so I may even put that out at some time right. it's uh, um, right. really kind of crusty stuff tell us a bit about the Portsmouth Symphonia how that came about and, um, and then I'd like to tie it into you mentioned that you had given up um, improvising but but you didn't give up kind of playing with musical forms and didn't give up the joy of, uh, you know, exploring music in, in ways that, that might not be standard. Sure. Well, the Sports of Symphonia came about, I was teaching, um, like a few of other, other composers of my kind of territory, uh, I was teaching in a fine art college, and that was mainly because a lot of, uh, the kind of work that we did was seen as being so unorthodox we were not really employable in music departments mm. or universities or conservatoires. So I was working in an art college. I was working with painters, sculptors, people doing events, making movies, conceptual artists. 
And we worked on all sorts of <clears throat> experimental um, um, musical ideas, often around cage, fluxus, and so on. And um, then, which didn't involve specific musical skills, but just the ability to be inventive yeah. with sound and environments. And one day we decided we'd have um, make an orchestra just for one, one as a one-off, and a, a classical orchestra, and we called it the Post Symphonia. And um, there were 13 of us originally, and each one had to choose an instrument they would play. And we get we had three days before we were going to give the performance, and we had to decide a repertoire because given that these people were not kind of classical musicians, they really only knew music as it came through kind of popular media and so we chose uh, the William Tell Overture because that was the theme music for the Lone Ranger mm. TV series mm -hmm. um, and we all got instruments we wanted to play one or two people a couple of guys had a saxophone and so on and uh, I bought a euphonium I think from a bicycle shop and we had this a kind of photocopy of the piano score and we, everyone had a chart of their fingering for their instruments so we were just struggling through it as we were playing and uh, everyone was, was it was really pretty terrible, but we were all doing our best, and we were, you could hear what we're aiming at, you know, hear yeah. what there was there, and in a way it became hilarious because there was this gap between what we were achieving, what you knew we were trying to do, yeah. and it went on and on, and eventually we added more repertoire and uh, made recordings and so on, but the, we never got any better. <laughs> but it's music as art, and it's music as concept, and that's something that you know, from sinking of the Titanic and, and, and possibly earlier that it was in your mind. When did, when did you first start to kind of think about the potential of music as conceptual art and, and being free to, you know, again, tying it back to improvisation, in many people's minds, people think that improvisation might be the freest form, but there's other forms of freedom out there. When did you first start to think about those kind of forms of freedom within music? I think it was probably the mid-60s when I was giving up playing um, improvised music. I, I, what I found, although there is this implied freedom in improvised music, in a sense you're constrained by the company that you keep. You know, you're playing yeah. with the same people and eventually you develop a kind of a, a way of working, which is great. It's, it's what chamber music is. But it's, uh, that's the way people do develop. But in terms of taking music and ideas further forward, I found I could do that better by reflecting and thinking things in the in a detached way mm. and it's probably sort of meeting cage and getting to know cage that helped that process to some extent uh, and i would say probably the first piece that that started to engage with the idea of a, a concept was the sink of the titanic which was written or drafted when i was teaching with these students at portsmouth mm. uh, in, in 1969 and that was when i wanted to find out it was something that could be the equivalent of a conceptual art within music, and that was my attempt at it. Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, you definitely have had a, a lot of music that that it will forever be considered art, um, full of beauty, full of thought, full of uh, spirit. Um, there's music that you, you've you've done a lot of vocal music, and yeah. you know a lot of this music. Um, you know, it has to be very planned in a way, and, and all of the the counterpoints. And when did when did you first come across, um, the, or when were you first inspired to really focus on voice and and make that a part of your uh, process? I think it was probably in the aftermath of having written my first opera. <clears throat> I wrote my first opera around about 1981, 82, when. 
uh, Robert Wilson asked me to work with him on uh, a version of Euripides Medea, which became an opera. <coughs> Excuse me. And at that time, I hadn't written anything for the voice or the orchestra or anything, and so it was a new thing to me. But having done that, which was a big enterprise, and eventually it was cancelled when we were first originally going to do it in 82, it was eventually done by the Lyon Opera and then the Paris Opera in 1984, and I learned a lot by working with real um, high-level professional performers, and I felt I would like to do more. And in the aftermath of that, I guess probably because I became a little bit better known in so-called classical music circles as you from the more, uh, more experimental world. Mm. I was approached by various people to write for them, and one of the, the groups that did that was the Hilliard Ensemble, which is probably the finest um, early music group, yeah. uh, certainly of its time, and uh, a phenomenal group who was only recently retired, and I worked with them for many years, and one of the singers in there, John Potter, is now, for the last 15 years, has been singing with my ensemble. So they led me into a world of vocal music where I learned so much about the human voice and about its potential that it's something which uh, is really become, uh, has become my, my ideal way of working. If in an ideal world, if I you know, had nothing else to do, I would like to just write for the human voice, but I do other things, you know, ballets and all kinds yeah. of things, but the human voice is what I really love. What, what's interesting is, again, the, the, the very intricate and, and elaborate um, kind of uh, composition and counterpoint within madrigals, but also, in a way, freedom, because it's sometimes interpreting, or maybe always, I'm, I'm not as informed maybe as I should be, but interpreting text and, and material that exists. What about madrigals? Um, kind of pulled you in because you've you've worked a lot in that world. Yeah. Well, I I did my first madrigals um, through uh, a friend of a sound engineer, a friend of mine, Bill Cadman, was killed in the lock of the air crash, and I did a kind of requiem for him, which the Hilliard uh, performed and eventually recorded, and we did a kind of a I think it was the tenth anniversary memorial concert in 1998 in London at the Westminster Cathedral, and the, Bill's family, uh, who I became close with, uh, wanted to commission me to do something, like, and I couldn't possibly take any money from them. They're friends. Uh, yeah. But um, I suggested if they wanted to do something, maybe just get a writer to do something, and then I would write to that, but I wouldn't charge anything. And we came up with a bunch of madrigals written by a poet friend of mine who had been the librettist for my second opera. And um, so I wrote this book of English Madrigals for the Hilliard. And then as a result of that, I started to write more and was asked for more. And I'm now actually on my eighth book of Madrigals. I've finished five. I'm part of the way through six, seven, and eight. Mm. And a lot of them are setting sort of the classic Italian Renaissance uh, Madrigal texts by Petrarch and others. And so the, my model is that kind of 16th century Italy. But clearly I'm doing things which they would have done then as they did things that I wouldn't do yeah, now. So it's, it's within that tradition, in a way, I do enjoy n working within a kind of um, a historical tradition and finding a way of taking it further, subverting it perhaps, or, or just rethinking it. You've, you've done a lot of work also with uh, vocal uh, artists from the Faroe Islands. Why... why why does that appeal to you, and what did you find in the Faroe Islands that that um, inspired you to, to work with artists? Well, 
I mean, the Faroe Islands is one of the most extraordinary and really beautiful places. But I got to know the Faroe Islands. I know of the Faroe Islands as this very kind of mythic group of islands somewhere a few hundred miles north of Scotland. But I, in my third opera, I was working uh, in Mainz with um, an opera based on the life of Gutenberg. And this opera had mainly uh, male parts and some very fine low basses. And the first thing I heard was a rehearsal with one low bass, uh, Rooney Brasseberg, who is the only, at that time, was the only professional singer to come out of the Faroe Islands, and he's a great kind of operatic bass. And I decided I, I would like to, I wanted to became friends, and I wanted to do more with him, and eventually pro, pro, uh, the prospect came up, uh, and I wrote a piece based on some Icelandic um, um, saga poetry uh, with him, uh, and I went used to go out to the Faroe Islands and... Um, spend time with him because he told me how he would, re when he was rehearsing, he would sing in the morning in these uh, caves and these uh, little fjords, and uh, I wanted to see that, what that was like, so I, I started to go to the Faroe Islands and became friends with him and others, a great Faroese uh, singer um, uh, who sang in my um, uh, third, fourth opera, um, Ivor Palsotti, a wonderful kind of soprano. Uh, we all became friends, and but I, I love the Faroe Islands. I love its isolation, um, its independence. It's, it's 18 islands, of which one is uninhabited. Total population, about 40,000 people in the entire country. Uh, it technically belongs to Denmark, but it's independent of the EU. There's a great spirit. These islands are in the North Atlantic. There's very little snow because it's in the Gulf Stream, but it's very windy. There's no trees, 600-foot-high cliffs. It's pure Viking territory, and mm. I just love the kind of quality and the kind of resonance and the depth of this place and Rooney's voice to me had that he was like some he was like about six foot six he's a huge guy and like a, a, a big gentle viking so I, I wanted to work on this this kind of material with him and with others in the pharaohs and uh, it's a place I go back to from time to time and I'm extremely fond of I still follow you know, double check, how is the Faroese soccer team doing these days? You know, not very well usually, but I do check, you know. It's about about 50,000 people who, who live there, is that correct? 40, about 40,000. 40, and the, the amazing thing is, you know, if you have an international match there, you have 11,000 people there. That's more than a quarter of the entire population of a country. Wow. It's incredible. So when you're there, it's 40,001, and yeah. uh, you're a productive uh, guest. Flashing to today, we've got just a few minutes uh, left here and want to use the use time wisely. Um, the fifth century. This is a, a recent recording that um, came out on ECM Records. Um, can you tell us a bit about the fifth century? It was a commission from a group called The Crossing, and in fact, as it happens, last week I was with The Crossing in Montana. They then they're, they're still there this week. Uh, they have a kind of choral initiative there, which a guy called John Zeichel, who um, is a kind of teacher in, in Big Sky. Um, they have two weeks of work there, and I was there last week with The Crossing. And um, they, I did this piece, which is setting of a kind of 17th century English mystic, a man called Thomas Traherne, who wrote this book called Centuries of Meditation, which is divided into five sections, and I focused on the 5th century. And it's the kind of text, it's this kind of, rather ecstatic um, view of infinity, of God, of space, uh, and it's extraordinary language. And I wanted to work with this choir because to me they are probably the finest choir in North America. They're unbelievably good, and it was a pleasure to work with them. And they had the idea of me doing this 
this choral piece with a saxophone quartet, which I love the idea of that because I, you know, the sax quartet it forms into four vocal parts, you know, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, just as the chorus does, and so the things blend together. And sometimes you can't, not quite sure which is a saxophone, which is the human voice, mm-hmm. and it was a. A beautiful challenge to do that, and we plan to do more work, and it was, they're just fantastic musicians. They're based in Philadelphia, but Donald Nally, who directs it, I think he teaches at Northwestern in, in um, Illinois, uh, but um, it's a really a great, great group, and it was such a fantastic experience to work with them. Ex- ecstatic uh, material indeed and, yep. and just want to read a couple of the uh, titles of the tracks here, because you'll, you'll get the picture. We see the heavens with our eyes. As sure as there is a space infinite, infinity of space is like a painter's table. Eternity is a mysterious absence of times and ages. His omnipresence is our field of joys, and on and on. And so, so the titles alone, you I get it, but then the music uh, surely amplifies that further. We're, we're going to end with uh, one of my favorite pieces from this album called Eternity Magnifies Our Joys Exceedingly. And I, I feel like uh, uh, that's, uh, I feel like we might fly off with, with that one. Um, but before we do, I, I'd love to just kind of open it up. Is there anything, Gavin Breyers here, in the now that, that you're um, most excited to share with the world or that you feel like you'd like to, uh, to let people know? Well, no, I'm just carrying on writing. I'll just keep going as long as I can until the brain stops or the body gives up. Um, you know, there's no sign of that yet. Um, I'm working at the moment. I'm writing a, a ballet with Edward Locke, a uh, Quebec um, choreographer. I work with a lot. I've got three more ballets with him. I have a new opera, which chamber opera, which opens in March, which I'm working on based on Michael Ondaatje's The Collected Works of Billy the Kid. Mm. So I'm doing a kind of cowboy opera. Um, and I'm writing more vocal music. I just keep going on and on, and um, you know, it'll end when it ends. But from from now, I just keep keep plugging away. And um, things I will do more with the crossing, and so more vocal music. I hope. Um, yeah, just keep keep it going. Plugging away in the right way and doing uh, it in uh, beautiful settings and with uh, family and and friends by your side. So it's a, a good way to do it. If you want to uh, sidle up to uh, Gavin Briars, you can cruise on over to gavinbriars.com and uh, explore his uh, his creative world. And uh, again, you know, we've played little snippets of pieces today and just meant to uh, stimulate your mind and your interest and hope that you travel further. Gavin, thanks for, for being here with us. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.